Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. This morning's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 7, verses 16 through 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living in the world spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortal life and breath and of all, breath and of all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted these times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought to not think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of immortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in his righteousness, by a man whom he has appointed. And as of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them, but some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius, the Apergate, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Amen. Amen. Well, it's so good to see you guys. Hello. And uh, yeah, we're so excited about lunch after. And, um, you know, I have some bad news about lunch, though. We forgot to invite somebody. We forgot to invite Autumn. But here's the good news. We remembered to invite Summer. I thought of that in the shower this morning. <laughs> oh, man. Is that how you know? 
that's when you know you're officially a pastor of a church. I just thought that was hilarious. You know, Ecclesia, it's so good to be with you this morning. And one of the biggest gifts I have been given over the past, uh, we've, been, we've been planting this church and in the process of doing this for uh, a better part of 21 months, kind of in that range. And it's been really beautiful. Um, as, as my um, trajectory changed, my ministry changed, I, I had to change some of my habits, uh, some of the places I was spending my time. And so one of the things that I've been able to do is just try to be around people and there are only a few places in our society where you can just freeload and, and be, and they won't kick you out. So I had to identify those places, and there's a couple of options. Coffee shops, all right, amen. Bars, another one, they'll let you stay. Uh, libraries, they just don't want you to talk to anybody. And so a lot of my time has been spent in these sort of public spaces. I used to have an office, now I do not. And so now my office is wherever, they won't kick me out. And so I've been able to just kind of frequent these spaces. And one of the truly incredible things about just that habit, about the habit of showing up in the same place every day, is you start to get to know people. There are other people that have to show up and work in the same places every day. And so I've had this incredible uh, good fortune of, of working alongside these people in the same coffee shop every day. And you sort of become fellow pilgrims. You know, one of the incredible things about the show The Office, if you've ever watched it, is, is at the end it sort of shows that the, the, the story that they were telling all along was that this story was not about like Steve Carell and his super awkwardness. And if you watch the first season, and you're just like, oh, that's so awkward. I can't even deal with that. I get it. I do. But if you watch it to the end, you see that this is a story about a group of people that live together for a long period of time. And one of the beauties of the, our work, and one of the beauties of the things that we do is we spend time with people over a long period of time. And so for me, my office has become coffee shops, bars, that kind of thing. And as I worked in these spaces, I got to know people. And it's been amazing to watch as, as a friendship progresses from, you know, how's your day going? What are you doing this weekend? You know, you do those little cliches like, oh, the weekend, right? Like, yeah, if you ever want to talk to anybody, just wait till the end of the week and be like, man, so glad it's Friday. Right? People are like, yeah, right? So, or you can talk about the weather. Also works really well. But I've been able to move past that. Move to something more substantial. Beyond the, hey, what do you do for a living? How's your day going? And been able to hear the stories that, that form and shape people. I think of my friend Henry, who is this like gentle, beautiful man who sits in this same spot every day working on his laptop, and I got to know like, what he does. And as, as we became friends, you know, he, he let me in. When he was uh, younger, he had three, they had three kids, his wife and he, and his wife passed away, and how that's, that's shaped and that's formed his life. I think of my friend Stephen, who spent months building one of those 15-passenger vans into something that you can live in, which apparently is a thing people do. And then he was going to the West Coast and was just going to travel around and live in a van down by the river. And everybody, everybody has a story. And if you take the time, if you peel back the layers, if you're willing to listen and be genuinely interested and show up over time, they will invite you into their stories. And this place is sacred ground. And so the question I have for you this morning as we begin is, what's your story? 
What's your story? For most of us, it's a complicated question. We recount the things that we have done or maybe something that's happened to you. We think of our stories as an accumulation of our life experiences, of our past, of our surroundings, and our culture. And we tend to define our culture, or our stories, in retrospect. But today, I want to examine the manner in which the Bible asks you this question, what's your story, and answers this question. We want to look at Paul on Mars Hill. You see, the words of the scriptures, these words that we just read and kind of had read over us just now, are asking us this very question. What is your story? But it's not just asking what has happened. It is surely a record of that. It's not less than that, but it's so much more. It's not just asking what were the people, the pivotal moments and the heartaches that made you into the person that you are. It's asking what's the story that you're living into right now? What's the story that gives meaning and shape to your life every day? What's the story that animates your life? And for many of us, we rarely give much thought to it. This is how stories work. They move us, they inspire our choices and give us a vision for the good life without ever coming out and saying, hey everyone, This is your story. For many of us, we don't ever give much thought to it. How these stories that that kind of exist in our world are giving shape to our lives are sort of subtly directing our choices. So today, I want to invite you into sort of an intentional living, an intentional story building. We've been in this series following Paul through the streets of Athens and ascending up Mars Hill. And throughout the series, we have seen how similar the worlds of first century Athens and the worlds of 21st century Princeton really are. We've seen Paul's posture towards the city and imagine what it might look like for us to be a people to adopt a similar approach as we seek to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is king over all. You see, Paul walks into this pluralistic world and he doesn't say, hey, you're all doing it wrong. You don't know the truth. He just starts proclaiming the truth. He starts quoting from their poets. He says, this is what I've seen in your culture that's pointing to something beautiful and good. And instead of burning them down and sending you dumb idolaters and saying all this stuff, instead he says, look, this is the thing that you've been longing for, the thing that you've been aching for. He walks through the streets of Athens and he observes the vast amounts of idols. And in verse 16, it tells us that Paul is deeply distressed. He's a little bit undone by this. But he doesn't stop at judgment or condemnation. Instead, he probes deeper. What does all this misplaced worship, what does all this worshiping of idols truly point to? What does it say about these people? What does it mean of what hope looks like for them? And in observing the idols alongside Paul, as we've read this story now for three weeks in in our uh, gatherings, we've seen two things. First, the idols of a society tell the truth about the culture. It's another way of saying, if you want to see what's important to a person, look at their bank account, right? Like, what do you truly value? Well, it can be shown, right? And the idols of a culture show what a culture really values. And you think about our own culture, like things like youth and wealth and success, those things jump to the top. So the idols are telling the truth, even if we wouldn't come out and say it. Second, And this is what we see in the second part of Paul's posture and his strategy in Athens. The idols always point to something beyond themselves. A deeper longing, something truer, something even beautiful. 
Paul could have left Athens just as a casual observer. He could have walked through the streets and not said a word to any of the people. He could have met his friends that were going to pick him up at the end of the day and said, have you seen all the idols in Athens? But instead, Paul doesn't stop at this sort of surface level thing. He peels back the layers. He looks beneath the surface of the idols and he looks to the longing that the idols are pointing to. And this is what we encouraged you last week, friends. Look to the longing. People, we are, we are worshiping creatures. We are created by God to worship God and Him alone. And short of that, we will worship other things. And, and so in our days, in our neighborhoods, in the places that we walk every day, people are looking for something to give their heart to. And friends, it's not for us to say, hey, that's a dumb thing for you to do. What, what's for us is to say, what is that longing pointing to? And this is what Paul does. And today we want to look at some of the stories— that, that Paul tells and some of the stories that emerge in our world. And we want to do what Paul is doing here a little bit. We want to point to the beauty and to the longing. What Paul demonstrates for us is such a vital truth. And it's something I, I just want to show every single person. Because for me, it sort of gives so much shape and, and animation to my life. It's the reason in so many ways that I follow Jesus. What I want to show you today is such a vital truth about God. In Genesis 1, God makes the world, and he bestows upon it his blessing and his stamp of approval. With each succeeding day, as he creates the world, as he speaks it into existence, he steps back and he says, it is good. Friends, God's fundamental orientation to this world is not that he is angry at it. It is not that he hates it. God's fundamental orientation to this world is that he loves the world that he has made. It is infused with his goodness through and through. And we see this from the very beginning of the story. Ecclesia, all goodness in our world, every ounce of it that exists in our universe, whether it names Jesus as Lord or not, is a gift of God. And this is so important for us to grasp this morning. There's a pastor named Greg Boyd, and one of the, one, something he said uh, has, has given so much shape to my life, so I want to share that with you this morning. He says, the beauty of our lives will never outrun the way we envision God. And so friends, this morning, how do you envision God? Is God, is God beautiful? Is God good? Is, is God fun to be around? Greg Boyd says, the beauty of our lives will never outrun the way that we envision God. And my hope for you this morning is simple, to help you see that all beauty in our world comes from God. That it is a gift and it is a signpost that he is pointing, pointing you back to the fundamental reality of the world. That God loves it and he would do anything to be in relationship with us. This is the story that the Bible is telling. God is beautiful. Have you thought that? Like, for those of you who follow Jesus, have you just said, God, you're, you're beautiful. You're so good. This story is so beyond what I could ever imagine. And out of God's abundant beauty, out of this never-ending beauty, life breaks forth. There's a theologian named David Bentley Hart. And he says, beauty is a category that is indispensable to Christian thought. All that theology says of the triune life of God, the gratuity and goodness of creation, the incarnation of Jesus, and the salvation of the world makes room for us a thought and a narrative of the beautiful. God is inviting us to behold his beauty. 
It is his goodness that is calling us. Even when his goodness is calling us to repentance, even when it's calling us to change our ways, it's his beauty, it's his goodness, it's his beckoning. And in Acts 17, Paul stands before the Areopagus, this wisdom council, like the, I don't know if any of you are Star Wars fans, but like the Jedis, you know, they're sitting there just in their robes. Like, what do they do all day? Sitting around, judging people. I don't know anything about Star Wars. I'm <laughs> and he is brought before this wisdom council to clarify his teaching as he walked about. And so Paul goes throughout the ancient world and he teaches about this Jesus of Nazareth, risen from the dead. And Paul explains the story to them as he's brought before them. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he who is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't need, he doesn't live in shrines made by human hands. Remember, Paul's seen all these idols made by human hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath in all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth. And he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him. There are so many things in our culture that are an example of exactly what Paul is talking about here. Have you ever been blindfolded? And so, you, you know, you, you can't see, and so you're not exactly running, right? Like you're kind of trying to find something that could give you some semblance of where you are, or maybe just something to make sure that you don't fall on your face, right? You have to walk slowly. You have to kind of keep your arms out and make sure that if you were to fall, that your arms are going to catch you, right? And Paul is sort of describing something like this. People are tracing the walls with their hands. Whether they know Jesus or not, they're trying to find something to hold on to, trying to walk towards something. And we see this throughout our culture. N.T. Wright, the theologian, calls these echoes. Those things that bear witness to the image of God and the goodness of God's creation that was bestowed upon the world from its beginning. Remember, friends, God is beautiful. His fundamental orientation to this world is one of unfailing love. And so all the goodness in our world, all the things that even though they wouldn't say that, yes, we're doing this because of Jesus, is, is a response to that initial goodness that was put in us from the very beginning. I don't know if any of you saw at the end of this week, there was a, a climate strike going on kind of uh, throughout the world and here in Princeton. And for a lot of people who participate, any of you part of that? Just curious. I, I, I know everything gets like weirdly political, but you know, anyway. <laughs> now, and for a lot of people who participated, they were not, you wouldn't go up to them and say, hey, why are you doing this? They wouldn't say, hey, I, I think in Genesis 1, it says that I'm made in the image of God and that my fundamental call in the world is to steward and, and take care of God's good creation. And I see what's going on in our world and I'm worried about the world that we're handing to our children. They probably wouldn't say all that, right? It would just be like, uh, we're all gonna die. 2050's coming. Uh, like, we're all afraid. Like, there's like a little bit of freaking out involved in all of this. But if you read Genesis 1, it's right there. Have dominion over the earth, steward and take care of it. Uh, the climate strike people, even though they may not have known it, and even though they may do, do things in a way that may not be like, hey, praise Jesus, he's right here, we're bearing witness to this fundamental thing that was given to us from the very beginning. Think of the people that you know 
that maybe they wouldn't identify as Christians. Maybe they wouldn't say, yeah, I love Jesus, I follow him with my life. But they are the first people to volunteer at the local soup kitchen or to give in response to a need. Their impulse is towards fairness and justice. And what we see throughout the scriptures is that all of this is an echo an echo of the image of God, an echo of the goodness of God that was put in us from the very beginning. And so today, I just want to hone in and focus in on one of these echoes that we so often just skate right by and it causes us to live our lives not knowing how truly good God is. I want to look at this echo that meets us every day. And if we'll look for it, if we'll trace it to its source, we see God's beauty infused in everything. Now, we've all had these moments, right? standing on a mountaintop. Just picture, like, whatever your happy place is, just picture that right now. Maybe you're watching a sunset. You're, an ex- you're experiencing a concert where the music just surrounds you and carries you. Maybe you've had an exquisite meal and you were just like, yes, Lord. Or that moment you felt so loved, you just felt that feeling of home and you wish you could just, like, take it and always have it with you. Or you saw, if you're a parent, you saw your child for the first time. We've all had those moments that you wish you could just freeze in time. That you feel yourself drawn into something larger than yourself. Something transcendent. Something beautiful. And what Paul is observing here in Athens is that something that um, is, we have been a part of a story of, of humanity all along. We worship things. We worship these moments. We worship these little things that seem to point to something bigger. But we stop there. We worship the beauty instead of the maker of the beauty. We stop at the experience or the feeling or the desire and fail to peel back the curtain to the author of it all. And in doing so, we elevate that which God placed in our world to point us back to himself. And we use that to circumvent and to avoid God. Think about the first sin that was committed. It was a tree. You know, it was something that God had placed there in the garden. And it was the one tree that God had said, don't eat from this tree, but you can eat from literally every other one. When we try to use the things of this world to circumvent or to avoid God, we do exactly what Paul is observing here in Athens. We we commit idolatry. C.S. Lewis says, there is but one good, and that is God. Everything else is good when it looks to him and bad when it turns from him. In week one of this series, we talked about the ancient idols and how they haven't gone away. They just live by new names, right? There's more underneath the surface in our world because as you walk through the streets of Princeton, you're not going to see like, oh, I see like what you're worshiping. We have things that are much more undercover. And what Paul does as he walks through the streets of Athens is he quotes. He quotes from the poets to kind of say, hey, look, here is the thing that you've been bowing down to. Here is the thing that you've been worshiping. Now, I present to you Exhibit A. This is, uh, these are lyrics from a song. So I didn't write this song. Somebody else did. We'll we'll get to that in just a second. Uh, The songwriter writes, But we might just get away with it. Religion's in your lips. That's pretty good theology. Even if it's a false god, we'd still worship. I think think she's on to something. We might just get away with it. The altar is my hips. Well. (laughs) Even if it's a false god, we'd still worship this love. Does anybody know who that is? 
Oh my goodness. T Swift. I was like, I, I don't know if I'm, if I'm reading this, I don't know if anyone's going to get it. Yes, it is, as one of your own poets have said, <laughs> the prolific Taylor Swift. Now, hey, look, this is no judgment. Ta Taylor Swift knows how to write a song, all right? Like four chords and I don't know about the truth, but we've got something going on here. But Taylor Swift is telling the truth here, right? Like our culture, our society, we stop. Like sex is a gift from God, but we stop at this thing that's just this merely physical uh, manipulation and representation of what God has given us as a good thing. And what Paul is doing is he's saying, your own poets are pointing to the truth. They're just not going far enough. Paul is moving past the small idolatry to see the deeper longing. Instead of saying, you shouldn't worship the dumb things that you've been making with your hands and bowing down to rocks, he says, look, there's something behind all of this. Something that is fundamentally true of the world and who you are. And in order to help them see the story, he appeals to the words of their own poets. He highlights from their words the places where their poets have grasped or glanced at the truth. And look again at Taylor Swift in another song called Lover. She sings, can I go where you go? Can we always be this close forever and ever? Now, you still see, like, Taylor Swift does not sing about anything else except relationships. This is my not expert opinion. But you can trace that longing to its source. Have you ever felt that? Just that need for safety, to be known for covenant? Like Taylor Swift is pointing to something, but she's probably stopping short, right? Like even our best relationships, even the best of marriages, and I have a beautiful one with my wife, Courtney, but it can't, like it can't fulfill all that. We can't provide for each other this eternal security and safety, this endless love. That's God's thing to give. And so these things in our world, these things, these aches in our bones are pointing us to something beyond. Something that's beyond our human uh, relationships, something beyond our human creations. Another poet, this one might be a little more well-known. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. That is, of course, the, the prophet and the poet. John Lennon. And he's not saying that all of this is going to happen because of what Jesus has done. Even, you know, kind of, he has this like ethereal vision that, I don't know, the world just kind of evaporates, but in the song called Imagine. But he's pointing to something, a radical equality. He's pointing to something where there's justice and beauty. It's, it's a longing. It's an echo. He may not say, it's all going to happen when Jesus comes back, but he's pointing to something. Some shared human longing. One last poet, the prophet and poet Tariq Trotter, asked the question, why is the world ugly when you made it in your image? And why is living life such a fight to the finish? You see the longing. Tariq Trotter is also known as Black Dot from the Roots. You see the longing. People are not saying, like, I'm going to write a song about Jesus, or I'm going to try to uh, make something that glorifies him. But even as they try to express the truth, as they try to, to witness to beauty, they are glancing something. And this is what Paul is saying here in Acts 17. Now, think of all the cliches in our world that are so common about God. People always say things like, everything happens for a reason, or God always has a plan. 
or the cliches about eternal life. Oh, oh, our loved ones are all watching over us. Now, I I won't go into what I think about all these cliches. That's a whole other sermon series that we'll get to at some point. But do you notice what they're saying about God and life? They're pointing to a longing that there is a God. I've, I've done funerals for people that, you know, quite honestly, they, they weren't Christians at all. But nobody's, you know, walking through at the end of the funeral and saying, okay, well, that's it. Guess he's gone now. No, there's still this ache and this missing of that person. There's still hope. Like, you know, maybe I'll see him again someday, even if they wouldn't talk about the Christian view of heaven or what it means for Jesus to be Lord of all and what it means for Jesus to be the resurrected king. But there's this longing for there to be a God, for, there, for, for all this chaos and all this madness that seems like it's always spinning out of control, for it to have some sense of purpose that extends beyond the bounds of our world. Or think of the movies and the Netflix series that now... And so many of them sort of exist in this in-between space now, right? Like we've got this like uh, the anti-hero, the sort of gray matter of the world. Think of Breaking Bad or The Walking Dead. This is bearing witness, and I think it's bearing witness to the complexity of humanity, our relationships, and just life in general. Life is often ambiguous. It's confusing. But it's interesting to me that our biggest stories, the ones that make the most money, the ones that draw the biggest audiences, are these epic stories? Stories like the Avengers, Star Wars. If you go back several years, you have the Batman movies, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, The Notebook. And in these stories, there's a starker contrast between the dark and the light. Evil is named as evil. It is confronted and it is defeated, usually, usually requiring, and I don't know where they got this story, an incredible sacrifice on behalf of the hero. When we trace these stories to their bigger themes, we see our longing, our longing for salvation. We see that the world is full of darkness, but there is a light. As John says, the darkness has, has uh, the light has shown in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And what we see as people try to bear witness to what is going on in our world, as they try to write a song or to craft a story, is that all of it, all that is truly beautiful. If you stood in an art gallery and you just said, wow, that is, that is beyond, that is drawing me out of myself. All that is truly beautiful is pointing us to a broader horizon, a deeper reality. And this is what Paul is doing on Mars Hill as he quotes from the Greek poets, as he invites people to see the echoes in their own culture. He doesn't condemn, he doesn't judge, he beckons. And friends, beauty beckons to us all. And at the critical moment, Paul says, he he says, look, he says, your shrines, you have a shrine to an unknown God. This impulse to search for that unknown God was right and correct. And now I want to make that unknown God known to you. His name is Jesus. And he centers the story on this man who lived 2,000 years ago in first century Palestine. And he walked the streets And he centers the story on this Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified on a Roman cross. And he says to them, he says, while God has looked, overlooked the times of human ignorance, he says this in verse 30, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. 
all of this, he has given assurance to all by raising Jesus from the dead. Ecclesia. What if Paul, and what if what Paul is saying to the Athenians is the same word that he has for you? That longing, that impulse to search for an unknown God, that, that, that moment you feel when you just like, you ache for the beauty, you just like want to jump into it. What if it's all true? What if it's the same word that he has for you, that all the beauty in the world is not an accident? All the longing is not God teasing you. All this impulse towards justice and purpose and worship and for eternity is not something that will evade you in the end, but Jesus has it for each one of us. And the story the story of God, the story that took place 2,000 years ago is an ongoing story and it invites every single one of us. And what Paul does here is he centers it upon Jesus and he says, if he is risen and I'm here to proclaim to you that he is, then it's all true. You don't have to bow down to idols anymore because God has a name and he came so that you might know yourself as loved by him. Friends, it's so easy for us to keep God at arm's length, to rest in the cliches of just like, yeah, I, I, you know, I know God loves me, or just try to be a good person. But what if Paul is saying on Mars Hill that beauty, that, that seeking the beautiful and the goodness and the, and the great things of this world without knowing its source is just idolatry. It's just worshiping the things that we can make. Idols are handmade gods. They're little gods that we can manage. They don't provide any of the things that we're actually longing for. They cannot save us. They cannot give meaning and justice and life. They are as powerless as we are. But all the beauty in this world, whether it's the big transcendent beauty you see standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, or whether it's that simple beauty that you get when you take a sip of a cup of coffee in the morning, all of it is pointing you toward the goodness of God. You don't have to live in shame anymore because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There has never been a moment when God has not been near to you, even in your darkest hours. As Paul says, we in him, we live and we move and we have our being. God is beckoning you to see the God behind all the goodness. Now, it's profoundly ironic for me that I, I love those shows where they take an old house and they remake them. And I say it's ironic because I am like horribly and hopelessly unskilled when it comes to things like swinging hammers and building things. I did build the donut wall, so uh, approach it at your own risk is all I will say. But the thing I love, the thing I love about those shows is there's this impulse not to throw it away. Not to say, ah, oh, this is useless. Let's bulldoze this thing and build something else. They see this goodness that is there. They see the bones of the house. Or they see one feature of the house that needs to be kept and highlighted. And they go through and Chip and Joanna Gaines work their Harry Potter wizardry. And all of a sudden, it's a crazy beautiful farmhouse, right? But friends, what if... Jesus coming to this world is not saying that God is going to bulldoze it all, going to remove it all. What if he's saying that all the beauty, all the goodness, 
all the goodness that's there, all the pieces of your story, we're going to take those. We're going to highlight those. We're going to make those into something new, something that you can live in. Because when we talk about our stories, we tend to think of our past. We tend to think of what's happened to us. And Jesus is saying that my story is ongoing and it will go on forever. It will be a house that you can live in, that you can make your life in forever and ever. And what if no matter the shape that your house is in, Jesus is looking at your life. He's looking at the things that that make up who you are. And he's saying, we can work with this. Because here's the thing. Jesus' beauty is so overwhelming, so incredible, that he was able to take the most vile and horrible symbol in our world and turn it into something beautiful. Like, have you ever thought about how strange it is that the central image of Christian worship is a cross? Like, if it were an electric chair, we would understand the significance. The cross was a device that was devised to torture and maim people and then eventually kill them. But this is the thing about God's beauty. It is so overwhelming and so abundant that it can take even the worst things that we can do, the most vile and the most evil and the most violent things that we can do, and turn them into something beautiful. And friends, it's not just about these high-level things. It's about your life too. What if God can take the worst things that you have done, the worst things that you have experienced, the worst doubts that you feel, and turn them into something beautiful. What if all the beauty in this world is proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, that it's all good, it was all good in the beginning, and it will all be good in the end because he is going to restore all things. So what's your story? Jesus would say, it's not just what's happened to you. Your story is immersed in the beauty and the goodness of our beautiful God. Friends, let us pray. Jesus, we ask, God, that we would just glimpse your heart here this morning. God, that you would help us to see how easy it is to to stop short, to bow to things that aren't you. And so often you're just calling us to, to, to go deeper. Lord, the deep things in you are calling to the deep things in us. And God, as we feel that ache and that longing for your presence, even though we might not name it as such, God, will we see that you will not trick us or tease us, God, that you are available at every moment. Jesus, where we have been bowing to things that are not you, where we've been seeking beauty outside of the one who is truly beautiful, would you you just bring those things to mind this morning? God, it's not my job to, it's not my job to convict people. It's not my job to, to make them think about where your light needs to come in more. God, you do that. So Lord, would you do that this morning? And God, we ask that we would truly be people who live beautifully. God, if we are to be your witnesses in the world, to proclaim who you are, then our lives, God, our lives should radiate with your splendor. God, our our lives should radiate with thankfulness and gratitude because you have truly made a beautiful world. God, and our lives should seek to extend that beauty 
to those that it is not readily available, God, as people of justice, as people who reflect the beauty of who you are and who you showed yourself to be as you revealed yourself fully in Jesus. So God, would you help us to see that our story is your story and your story is one of beauty. God, you are beautiful. We love you. Turn to me, pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.